think the word eel freaks people out a bit and you know they relate it to jelly deals and that sort of stuff which doesn't really make any friends this side of the pond so yeah I think if we can get more people eating eel then I think it's yeah it's brilliant. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep. Upheaval and unexpected change can bring many disappointments but create new opportunities too. For some who thought they had their careers mapped out, the pandemic and its ramifications changed their path. It's been devastating for some, but others have embarked on new opportunities. Nicholas Hill is the owner of Smoke Trap Eels. Nicholas, how are you going? Good, mate. Good. You've uh, been a chef for many years now and all of a sudden you've got yourself a a smoked eels business. Um, what's this period of time like? Did you ever imagine you'd transition from chefing to that? Not really, no. Um, yeah, I think it just sort of came about quite naturally, really. One sort of thing fell away while another one was coming up. So, yeah, it just sort of pretty organically ticked along. Now, you made a bit of a name for yourself leaving um, Sepia when it closed. Uh, an award-winning restaurant, one of the best in the world, and starting at the Fitzroy Hotel and doing cuisine completely different. Can you tell us a bit about that period of time and the the cuisine that you embarked on cooking? Yeah, um, I mean, working for Martin at CPU was brilliant. You know, a lot of great training there and um, and a, a very different style to what we did at the Fitzroy. Um, I think the Fitzroy was sort of based around that sort of great British pub food that's known so well over there. Um, I spent a lot of time in London lived above a pub for the best part of a year um, and sort of, I think that sort of sparked the idea for it. Um, and it, I mean, it, Sydney has a lot of great pubs, but the sort of food offerings very diverse, I suppose, between them. Everyone goes from nachos to pizza and doesn't really have much of an identity. So the Fitzroy being that sort of old man's pub, I suppose, if you want to call it, looks quite British in the inside. I, I sort of fell in love with it straight away and, and um, we started cooking, yeah, British classics, scotch eggs and chip buddies and all that sort of stuff. Had you had experience doing that sort of thing before? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I hadn't actually worked in a pub. Um, I worked at the Ledbury in London, which pa owned, which owned um, the Harwood Arms, which is the, the pub I lived above. Um, so, I mean, I did, I think I did a stage there once just for fun, but I lived above it. So I think I just consume more scotch eggs than mayhem. So that's how we figured out to do it. <laughs> well, tell us about some of these dishes because, you know, some of them were pretty heavy for our climate but they're real, real classics and not, not something you see much on menus these days in Australia. No, not really. Um, we sort of went down that, I suppose, that sort of offerly route, sort of people compared what we did a bit more to that St John sort of vibe, um, which fit the room and fit what we did quite well. Um, yeah, we did like a pork pie tart, which was gained a bit of notoriety um, with like a jelly of Guinness and Branston pickle on the top, which is very heavily British. Um, lots of bone marrow, pig's heads and... All that sort of stuff sort of, you know, came about quite um, quite naturally. We did a smoked mackerel pie. Um, you know, everybody sort of asked if we're going to do a fish pie. And I don't even like fish pie personally um, in general, but we, <laughs> we sort of, we figured out a nice way to do a mackerel pie based on like a stargazy pie, uh, which says it with um, herring and stuff down in Cornwall, um, poking through the pastry. So we just did like a, a mallet, a, mu- a mullet, sorry, a mackerel cut, uh, lengthways straight through the middle, cold smoked it and laid it into the pie and baked it in a pastry with all the um, bones cooked into cream 
and then we sort of cook turnips and onions and potato and dill underneath it and lay that underneath the fish. So Wow. Yeah, I mean a bit a bit heavier than the average Aussie sort of pub offering. But the Fitzroy was and is very much a um a British pub as far as that sort of winter vibe goes, you know. It was very wintry, the open fire and it it wasn't really a summer pub uh for most people. So yeah, winter was our time to shine, it really really fit the bill. You're starting to really make a name for yourself with the food that you're doing there and then the pandemic came along. What was the what was the immediate impact on you? Um well I mean for the pub we had a bit of a downtime over summer. Um, like I say, it was a winter pub, so it sort of business dropped off a bit. And then coming into March, we really picked up a lot, actually. Um, the two weeks prior to shutting down, we were chock-a-block, um, which was really good. Um, and then, like everybody else, we shut on the 22nd, 23rd of March. Um, and, like, to be honest, I was pretty naive. I just thought, oh, we've got eight weeks off, this would be fun. You know, I just sort of figured out, like, let's just have a bit of a break and regroup. Um, and then it was a couple of weeks in, sort of started to dawn a bit like, oh, this isn't just a little break, it's going to be a while. So I didn't really think I was going to cook my last service at the Fitz on that Sunday. Um, but unfortunately, that was the case. How did you feel during that time? This is, you know, something that you had built um, and were really, you know, um, getting a name for yourself. So how did you feel when, you know, that sort of ended? Um, yeah, I mean, I went through the motions, I suppose. I was pretty... Pretty upset about, I suppose, for a bit. It was just like one of those things that happened organically, as far as we just were left alone to sort of go nuts and do what we did within the place. And we had that great offering of, you know, drinks doing the wine list, the guys who own the place, and our general manager, and everything just sort of fit this really nice package. It sort of grew by itself. So for all that to sort of slip away was a bit, a bit of a shocker. You know, we um. We tried. To, we did a bit of takeaway and some stuff like that. We had a a guy in the kitchen who um, receives no benefits because on a visa. So we did takeaway and bakery uh, for a few weeks, sort of just to help him pay the rent and keep ticking along. And then, unfortunately, when everybody else reopened and we didn't, business stopped off overnight. You know, and the next week the bakery was dead, and it was kind of like, well, how do we keep? You know, what do we keep doing here? Um, sort of looked at our options. Um, so yeah, I mean, the feeling in general was we had a, a fair bit of hope, but it was sort of very uncharted waters, so we weren't sure what was going to happen. You've uh, now left the the Fitzroy Hotel, and and you won't be returning. But you started Smoke Trap Eels. Can you tell us about how that started? Yeah, Smoke Trap was um, I I did um fishing with ET like uh, last year through a friend of mine sort of hooked the whole thing up and it was like, it was great fun. And, you know, as a kid who grew up watching him play footy, I was like, of course, I'm not going to say no. You know, I was so pumped. So um, we signed on to do that. And, you know, a lot of a lot of mates of mine and other chefs have done it and they're up on the reef catching coral trout and all this sort of stuff. And then it was like winter, rain, dark, cold. And we were up in the Hawkesbury trapping eels and in the mud. So... It was it was good fun. It was a bit of a difference to what I thought it was going to be. But I mean, I, I had, we used to use a lot of eel in in the UK, so I was just fascinated to see how he worked and how he did it all. Um, so we got a couple of eels into the fits and started playing around with some bits. And originally we just grilled it from raw and basted it with uh, treacle and whiskey, like a kabayaki kind of vibe. But um, 
which was really cool. And we played around with that and we had a little smoker there, but it just didn't really do it justice. So my business partner in Smoke Trap Eels, Michael Robinson, uh, is a butcher. He runs Hunger for Meats in Brankston. And we've worked together extensively at the Fits on dry aging all sorts of meats, pork and beef and all that sort of stuff. So, and he has a walk-in smoker that's just like Heritage. It's a beautiful old room. It's been there for many, many years. So we just sort of did a little test on some eels um, and it came out really good. So we just sort of started to refine it and it worked out that if I got the eels from this guy in the Hawkesbury, um, we'd have to get a big size batch. So the first one was about 30 or 40 kilos. Um, and we, this was just before COVID. So I had the whole lot ready. We weren't really thinking about selling them as smoke trap or anything. We just sort of played the idea of like, let's get a big batch, smoke them and have them just at the fits. And, uh, and then the pandemic shut us down. And I was sort of sitting on 30 kilos of eel thinking, I don't know what to do with this. So um, uh, Josh Niner rang me and he took them off my hands and put them in his pies for take home, which was really good. Um, and a guy with that sort of knowledge is really helpful to have a look at that product. So he helped us with a couple of ideas of how to sharpen and refine what we did. Um, and then, yeah, the next batch was 80 kilos and that's what sort of when we launched. We just thought, well, we've got the time. Let's try to sort of put in what we can. Eels are pretty slippery and pretty strong as well. What's the process in catching an eel? Yeah, they're um, yeah, they. I mean, they get up to fifteen kilo in the river, and if they're landlocked, they'll do they'll go up to twenty two kilos. Wow! So they're like they're monsters. These things. Yeah, we use long fin eel, um, which is can grow that that large, um, and yeah, the process basically they're trapped in the river, purged for up to a week. Um, in a sort of very cleaner part of the of the water. So obviously they go quite deep and they get a bit muddy. Um, so we purge them for a week and then we put them on ice to sleep and they come down, They so they go up to Brankston um, and then we gut them and brine them for two days in salt and treacle. Um, the treacle sort of just lends a really nice sweetness to it and offsets that sort of saltiness that you can get from just a straight salt brine. Uh, and then we smoke them over hickory in the walk-in chamber um, and that comes, all the hickory comes from a local pecan farm up in Brankston. So uh, from there we just package them. Um, we sell eels on the bone uh, and then we take the head and the tail off um, and the meat from the head and tail, there's a lot in the behind the skull. So we mince all that with some horseradish and pack it into little jars for pate and sell the pate. Um, and then, I mean, we, we waste nothing. So the, um, the livers, first time the livers I just gave them to Josh and they made a little parfait with them at the fish butchery, um, which is interesting. And then sort of we're just keeping them for those guys for their pate work. Um, and then any skin, bone, skull, anything that's left gets minced and dried back out in the smoker and sort of comes out like a katsubushi kind of vibe, um, which is cool. So we're selling those eel grey tea and that's sort of coming into the market in about a week or so. Eels are pretty tenacious. What's it like trying to wrangle one and what's the challenges with um, butchering one from live? Well, live's not pretty. Um, uh, Martin actually showed me how to do it at CPU. He used to do it with a nip the head off and then get a um, like a cream gun and, and blast the, the vertebrae out. So it's sort of like Ikejimi, but a bit less intrusive. He used to do it with air, which was cool. We tried that on the first deals, but I mean, when we're doing like we, our last batch was 130 kilo, that's a lot, 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 to, lot of work. So um, live, they're pretty, pretty gnarly. Um, so even, even a dead one's pretty hectic to butcher. Um, the live ones, 
So it's just lots of blood and the heart beats for about a couple of hours after they're dead. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty pretty serious. They, they People sort of think that they're going to bite you straight away. They're, they're more protective than aggressive, I would say. Um, and they sort of have this thing where if you go up by the tail, its tail will hook around your hand and you can just lift it up and it doesn't sort of turn to try and bite you. It just feels that as a safety mechanism that it curls around whatever grabs the tail and that's how you sort of pick them up. Um, but as I say, we try not to deal with them live too much during the processing. What's the reaction been from industry with the eel products? Um, really good, actually. A massive um, following straight away. People are really into it. It's a product that I think there's only one other product on the market, but no one really does long fin eel. Short fin's the one that comes out of Victoria. Um, and, you know, they're a good product, but it's sort of... I think the thing with those guys is quite consistent, the size. Our ones sort of vary a lot. Um, and, yeah, I think... You know, we're sort of small batching at the moment. 130 is the biggest we'll probably do. Um, but it still takes three people, five hours to sort of push through them all. And, you know, it's a couple of days of brining and smoking and packaging. So um, the reaction's been really good. You know, chefs using them on menus and that sort of stuff and wholesaling that the um, eel on the bone. Obviously, everyone gets the skin. They use stocks and make all that sort of stuff out of it. So on the creative side, selling it on the on the bone has been really beneficial for a lot of the people that to buy it you worked at some pretty amazing restaurants at Ledbury and sepia but how did you start in chefing oh i um my mum's a pretty good cook i think i I don't have the real you know watching her cook as i grew up it was just like she did a mean chops peas and mash you know and pretty serious savory mince and rice um but she was just like enthusiastic and got me into cooking i think and um i did it as a work experience and then I went and did an apprenticeship at um, where, it's, it used to be called Spitlers, it's where um, Ormejo is now. I did a little year there and then went to Bathers Pavilion and did four years training with Surge there. I think that's what sort of really pushed me. That was an amazing, amazing place to learn and um, great training there. So that sort of really pushed me into it. And that's actually where I met Michael, my business partner in Smoke Trap Heels. He was a sous chef in the restaurant when I was just a commie. So yeah. Yeah, long time. You've uh, built a long career as a chef already. Do you see yourself back on the pans at all or is the smoke trap eels the way forward? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, during this sort of time of uncertainty, I'm just pushing smoke trap, um, you know, give it like a, a good push now for a couple of months. And I'm, I'm still t- I'm talking to people at the moment um, about sort of getting back into the kitchen and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, my wife's a nurse, so she's she's uh, studying a lot. So I'm sort of trying to give her a lot of time and, and space to to work on her career as well. You briefly mentioned your wife being a nurse. She's a a nurse in a COVID clinic in Bondi. What's that experience been like for your family? Yeah, um, so she started um, nursing the start of 2019. So she's sort of a bit fresh and. You know, the pandemic hit at a time where she's learning her trade, um, which is fantastic for her, um, obviously stressful as well. Um, so, yeah, when the pandemic first hit, I lost work and she gained a lot of it. So it's it's been good. It's just um, something we need to be very careful. She's had a couple of tests along the way just to be safe. So, you know, we're very cautious at home and that sort of thing and um, not trying to go out too much. And, yeah, she's... Uh, She's, she's doing really well. She's learning a lot and, and uh, 
taking care of people. With the lockdown in Melbourne and sort of spot cases going on in Sydney, how are you feeling about the industry moving forward at the moment and um, getting through COVID? Yeah, I think it's um, I mean it's a it's a crazy time, you know, to see Melbourne locked down like that is is really scary, and you know parts of Sydney having cases is sort of you, you just don't. I mean, it's very real, you know, it's something that sort of uh, sort of scares me a little bit, I suppose. Coming out of it on the other side, I think um, I think the industry is going to be stronger for sure. There'll be a new aspect to a lot of things, you know, people going having a retail aspect to what they do and takeaway and all that sort of stuff is sort of strengthening people, I suppose, um, for when it does all hopefully come back to normal. You mentioned that you you are talking to people and chefing is definitely back on the cards at some stage. Will we see more of that classic British pub food as we move forward with your career? Absolutely, yeah. I think I've sort of found that little lane um, to be in, which is uh, something I really enjoy. And it's it's a it's a world away from the cooking of sepia and the lebri and that sort of thing. But um, I'm sure there'll be some refinement of it as I go down the track. Um, but I get a lot of joy out of that sort of cooking, and it's, I, I really enjoy it. So yeah, it will definitely stay that way. Well, one of the stars of the menu was the Scotch egg. What does it take to make a good Scotch egg? Ooh, patience. The little things actually. A Scotch egg. Um, yeah, I think I, the first time I made it before the fits was TAFE. But like I said, I ate a lot of them. But it's just getting little things right, cooking your egg properly, having the right mince, um, and then, yeah, resting them overnight before your panne is another one as well. Helps sort of tighten them up. Um, yeah, but patience and little, little things, I'd say. If your egg's not cooked right, then you've got no chance. We used to um, tap the bottom. The, the trick was to tap the bottom of the egg before you boil it. So you bring them all to room temp and just tap the egg, bottom of the egg so it just cracks. Um, and then it sort of creates like a little air pocket so that when it cooks, you can peel from the bottom up and you get a slick egg. So with with eels, and that's your your mission moving forward at the moment, you know, a lot of the eel you're using uh, went to shark fishermen for bait before you came along. Does it feel good that you've opened up a new market for eel? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I was pretty shocked that it was, you know, a big part of shark bait really. Um, and I think sort of people being aware and if people get onto it and start to eat more of it because of what we do, then I think that's fantastic. Um, you know, when we first cooked it from raw and grilling it, the texture's like, it's quite bouncy. It's almost like lobster or prawn, you know. It has that real shellfishy kind of texture to it, which is amazing to see that and think, well, it should be used used more often, you know. I think the word eel freaks people out a bit and, you know, they relate it to jelly deals and that sort of stuff, which doesn't really make any friends this side of the pond. So, yeah, I think if we can get more people eating eel, then I think that's, yeah, it's brilliant. You mentioned that uh, there may be some sort of refinement on that sort of classic British pub food um, for you moving forward. What was the time like at, uh, at the Ledbury? What did you take out of that experience as a chef? Um, I think the Ledbury probably put me instead for the rest of my career. I got the most out of the Ledbury than anywhere I've worked. Um, you know, working for Brett was like taxing but very rewarding, a lot of hours. Um, and, yeah, I think I, I, I went there, you know, feeling kind of confident, I suppose, and then just realised I was the little fish in the big pond. Um, so that training, I did three years at the start as a junior, and did all the sections and then meet during game season, which is a totally different, you know, different ball game. Um, and then I came back to Australia and 
the second three years, I went back as a senior, as a sous chef. And that was really learning sort of how to think and talk and train and talk to people and, and sort of how to work, you know, grow, growing up a bit, I suppose. So, yeah, that training was, was amazing. You know, I I definitely aged a few years more than I'd like to in that time, but you know I got the most out of it. So <laughs> I'll take what I can get. Was there a dish on uh, the menu at the Ledbury that you had to cook that changed your perception of food and has lived with you beyond those years? Yeah, definitely. Uh, flame grilled mackerel. That's one that's changed. I think it's changed a lot of people that work there. To be honest, lots of burnt fingers, lots of colourful language. Um, it was like a, a, a fillet, fillet of mackerel, which is, I mean, a lot of people, I think the British use it quite a bit, but it wasn't at that sort of top end, you know, Michelin star sort of thing as much. Um, and you just pan fried a mackerel fillet and then put onto a, uh, a rack and grilled it over flames and then finished it in like a little shiso vinaigrette. Um, and it was just a lot of heartache trying to cook them all and get them right. And, you know, all the garnish for it was done every day. Um, and even just filleting mackerel was something I hadn't done before. So it sort of was a real test um, for me. And I know a lot of people who went through that kitchen will definitely remember that dish. Change a few of them. Do you see more seafood ending up as part of your business with smoke trap eels moving forward? Uh, we've been asked this already, actually. Even early in the piece, people sort of hitting us up about that. I mean, we're just going to stay focused on the one, the one thing at the moment. Um, and even getting three products out of one eel is a lot of work um so i mean as far as the smokehouse goes we have a lot of space to to expand um but i think putting all the focus into the eel and probably trying to get more eel out there than rather just sort of smoking salmon or something that people are like yeah cool we know that one that's easy and sort of rather stick to our guns and, and and keep on the eels to keep people interested in that eel is something that's not for everyone but how would, how would you describe the flavour of eel and are your products um, accessible to everyone, do you think? Yeah, I think the, f- the flavour of eel is um, like fishy but meaty, you know. It, it has a, a sort of meaty quality to it. Like I say, the texture of the meat's kind of bouncy a bit, but once it's smoked and because it's cooked over a long period of time, we hot smoke for about 10 to 12 hours, so it's a long smoke. Um, yeah, I think the flavour of it... Um, is very approachable. Like I say, the word eel freaks people out. The pate is really, um, is really accessible. It, it does have a, 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 you know, gives you the memory of just a nice fish pate, um, but there's a light eel flavor to it. Um, and I think eel is quite often associated with being like a muddy fish. Um, but like I say, we get very clean eels from the top end of the Hawkesbury River, um, which, which sort of lend for a much cleaner and brighter flavor. Um, and then we sell pieces of eel on the bone for retail as well, which is sort of, I mean, it's, it's quite easy to take off the bone, um, but it's very rewarding as getting, you know, bones and skin and all that sort of stuff to, to cook with at home. You've had a fair bit of time off and a chance to start a new business. What, what's this period of time been like? Has it, has it changed you? Yeah, it definitely changed me. I um, chilled out a bit. I sort of didn't have much of a choice. Um, five months since I've cooked in the kitchen, um, which is... Yeah, it's been tough, really. Just trying to think about... I'm, I'm really glad I had Smoke Trap to sort of focus on. Um, but, yeah, I think just... In general, it's been pretty 
pretty interesting. I've never really had this much time off, so I didn't really know what to do with myself for a while. Um, I think my wife wants me to go out a bit more because I'm just, you know, you end up at home too much and just <laughs> making a mess and, you know, the dog's happy. But other than that, yeah, it's a bit frustrating. How do you see the industry moving forward? What sort of restaurants do you think we'll see and what, what sort of shape will it be in? Hmm. Well, I've always seen Australia as like having an, a, a very strong sort of middle ground offering. You know, there's, a, there's less bike gloves and tablecloths here than, than London, for instance. Um, so I think uh, the survival rate of most restaurants, I hope, will be quite high. Um, and I think the other side just, yeah, like I say, I think it's going to have to have a, a different outlook and that sort of retail aspect or takeaway or whatever people can do. And there's a lot of really creative people out there doing interesting things with their business to move forward already. Um, I think, you know, the road out probably sees more people um, staying on that sort of path, which is... Yeah, it's exciting. When you do end up in a in another kitchen in the not too distant future, um, what's one of the dishes that we may have seen from your past that may appear on this new menu? Uh, I think pork pie tart is one that we just sort of, if there's one dish we took away from the Fitzroy that we sort of nailed on the head and people enjoyed and just something that um, we're very proud of was, uh, was yeah, pork pie tart. So it's uh, a dripping pastry uh, like a Cornish pasty pastry made with rendered dry-aged beef fat um, to line the tart and then a, a farce made from pork jowl, back fat, bacon, shoulder and lots of white pepper and then we cook and press that into the tart. We don't blind bake it and then we set a jelly of uh, Branston pickle and Guinness on the top um, served with some hot mustard. So yeah, something like that, sort of simple, quite clean, ends up pretty sharp. Amazing. So yeah, that, I think that'll definitely come with us. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It sounds amazing. Uh, Nicholas, loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, good luck with the smoke trap eels. It's um, bloody amazing that you're doing that and hopefully see you in a kitchen pretty soon cooking again. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.